All right, let's kick off our Absalom Absalom series here with chapters one and two this week. We're going to be digging into what is probably the greatest Southern story of all time. And let's rearrange it so it can make some sense. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Welcome to the Codex Cantina. I am Una. And I am an AA. Uh, I see what you did there. So this story was published in 1936, as we kind of talked about in our Before Absalom video. And today we are covering only chapters one and two. Disclaimer, we are going to do our best. We are not masters of this text, but we are experienced, I want to say. This is my third round through this book. And Crypto here, this is his first round. Go watch our Before video. You read this, and I think that will be instrumental. And as you read and follow along with this video series, it will help you tremendously in breaking down this story. And if it's your first time, don't feel upset with yourself if you are struggling through this. I have a quote from Hal Smith his publisher. So basically Faulkner was trying to get it serialized and Hal Smith replied with, this is damned confusing. (laughs) (laughs) We would both agree with that, right? Absolutely. Let's acknowledge it. Let's move on from that. Crypto, you help us from like a first time reader's viewpoint. I will try to shed as much light as I can from a third time's viewpoint. I'm sure people who have read it five, six times or even just smarter than us can probably shed even more to it. This is a very rich text with tons of different ways to interpret it. We're going to go about it from our angle, and I think that should greatly help a lot of people understand this text a little bit better. So today we're going to cover kind of the structure like we talked about in the before video, like Crypto mentioned, where chapter one, you get the whole plot. You get everything that's going to happen in the story in chapter one, and then we get more detailed and different angles of that data through each of the subsequent chapters. I love that. Such a cool way of telling the story. All right, so for the plot, we are going to rearrange this in order to the best of our ability. Mistakes can happen. Please feel free to point them out in the comments below. But chapter one, in June 1833, our story begins. Thomas Sutpen arrives age 25 in Jefferson, Mississippi. Jefferson's kind of like a new land at this point, new town. The only reference we have at this time is Mr. Coldfield had been there for at least a half a decade. Sutpen bought virgin land from the Chickasaw with money sources unknown. He builds a home on his new land called the Sutpen 100. And two years after building his home, he begins hosting rest parties where local town men come watch and gamble three years later in 1838 he marries ellen coldfield and almost nine months to the date after the marriage they have their first son henry who was born in 1839 two years later in 1841 judith is born and in 1845 rosa is born. So that's, I think, something that escapes a lot of people is rosa is younger than judith and henry it's really hammered home in chapter three but here in this chapter it's kind of (laughs) yeah so it's one of those rare cases where the aunt or uncle is younger than their nieces and nephews right now this part's a little bit sketchy because he does set up a racetrack on the road to the church i put as in 1848 but it's kind of in this era the context is rosa was three when this happened but we don't know when it was built exactly and one day judith and henry watch sutpin fight a slave to a bloody victory. In 1860, Judith falls in love with her brother's friend, who's unnamed at this point in time. Sutpin forbids the marriage. 1861, Charles and Henry fight in the Civil War in the same company. In 1864, Mr. Coldfield dies in the attic of starvation and a form of suicide. 1865, after the war has finished, Henry kills his sister's fiance for reasons unknown. Rosa sets Sutpin up to be a demon, in this discussion. And in 1909, Rosa is 64 years old, has invited Quentin over to tell him the story 
of Setpen. That's all in chapter one. You can, now that I've said this, if it wasn't clear, these are all things that are said in this chapter. It's confusing the first time. I recommend reading chapter two, but then going back and finishing chapter one, again, having some of this context and understanding. And you're going to start picking up on all these subtle clues and then you're going to start to see how, what a master craftsman he is at, uh, you know, writing and, and the literature of it is, is beautifully done. Chapter two, now we are going to dig in on the details and that's kind of what this section is it's not a Rashomon where different characters have different viewpoints and the results are different. You're digging in and pulling out some information that maybe only that narrator is going to know. So chapter one was Rosa, where she's telling this story to Quentin, and we're going to get more into viewpoints. Chapter two is Mr. Compson, who is the parent of Quentin, who's hearing the story in the first chapter. But Mr. Compson's dad is General Compson, well-known in, in the Yakna Patofler Faulkner writing universe, is the one who, who spends most of his time in the story. So it's a telephone game to get the story to Quentin. We'll come back to that. <laughs> so Mr. Compson is retelling of Sutpen's arrival. In 1833, Sutpen had arrived with two guns, a horse, and a mysterious past. Sutpen took up at the Holston house for a month, where he never drank, never socialized, and always kept a locked door, which the Holston House, if you didn't know, for those that are big readers, will recognize that from the Snopes trilogy as well as you and I had a reference to it in Reavers. It wasn't named, but they talked about the hotel in town. It was referring to this one, the, the Holston House, which is like the first hotel in Yaknapatafa. I've been to that hotel. <laughs> All right, so people were interested, but kept their distance from Sutpen due to his deadly skills and demonstration of usage of the guns. General Compson realized he was poor, but driven and ragged. From his past. Mysteriously, Sutpen purchased the virgin land and disappears for two months. He returns with slaves and a French architect in tow. 1835, over two years, he built his home with the money sources unknown and then began planting cotton became quite large. He began hosting parties over the next few years in terms of slave fights, the card games, stuff that we kind of talked about previously. And then in 1838 is when he married Ellen Coldfield. So again, you're revisiting a lot of these things, but from a different angle. So soon he left town and came back with furniture and crystals, and the town's like, okay, what's going on? Where's this coming from? We're not happy. Sutpen goes over to ask Mr. Coldfield for Ellen's hand in marriage, and when he walks out, he's arrested. He's soon bailed out, but we don't know why. He's soon released by General Compson and Mr. Coldfield. Sutpen is then married to Ellen two months later in 1838. And Mr. Coldfield wanted a small wedding, but Ellen's aunt is strong-armed and forces the town basically into coming to the wedding. However, most of the town remains outside of the church during the wedding. And when they walk out, Sutpen and Ellen, they pelt him with dirt and vegetable refuse as they leave the ceremony. Ellen cries and has rain on her wedding day. Wah, wah, wah. All right, so that's the plot rearranged in order Hopefully, I think I got most of it correct. Yeah, that looked, that looked good. All right, so for our, this discussion, we need to talk about the viewpoints on the structure of the story because that you can't skip this. If you skip this, you will be so confused as to what's happening in the story and you'll hate it. You must understand who is telling the story. And then we're going to go into briefly kind of the Sutpen allegory of the Old South. So as we know from the start of the book, we're looking at this from a unique perspective and it's Rose's perspective and... This is the hardest part of the entire book. This is a hard book. Just 
accept it. And if you remember our discussion from the Eveline video from James Joyce, where we talked about free indirect speech, where he just shifts out of first person and third person view very quickly. You have that with Faulkner in this section too, where he does use, not in this section, I don't think, but that idea of quickly shifting the timeline. In chapter two, he does shift the narrator. I would argue he shifts the narrator, but you're going to have that throughout the story. So you have to be vigilant about who's talking. That, that's that's going to be the struggle for people. So as we move into the story now, Rosa, I love the way that she tells the story because she's setting up Sudpen to be the, the monstrous villain of the whole story. I haven't read the whole book yet, but I think that really she's setting up the most negative viewpoint of him. And we're going to see the truth unfold throughout the entirety of the book and really get to what is as close as we can think of the truth because we might not have trustworthy uh, narrators through certain sections or maybe the entire book. We, we can't trust anybody and we kind of have to piece it together ourselves. I'm going to have to really nitpick what you just said there, but we're going to get to it when <laughs> we do the chapter one breakdown. Okay. So she okay. holds Quentin almost responsible for what his grandfather did. And she views Sutpen as the destruction of her family and almost the destruction of men like Sutpen of the entire Southern way. With her hatred, I think in the beginning, most readers will say, can I really trust this lady's view? Like, is she... Is she the most reliable person to be telling me about this person that she hates? Why wouldn't they trust her, though? I mean, it's very odd to go into a book saying, I'm not going to trust what I'm reading. I think it depends on a reader's a reader's skill and experience, right? But if they know that going in, it, it makes it maybe even more difficult. We're going to go into that in the next section. So chapters two through three, we have Mr. Compson reading. And we're going to focus just on chapter two for this video. But he presents a very different view where you have to remember this is Mr. Compson. His dad is the one that was his only thing that the closest thing to be called a friend of Sutpin, I believe is what they said. So are you really kind of going to talk bad about your your dad's friend? Not so much. You get almost a very different view from him to the point of view where you're like, oh, okay, this is a much more positive view. This is a driven man that was obviously hated by the town for some reason. But we don't know any of the reasons. Context is completely missing at this point in time in the story. Uh, it feels less emotional in some ways. And you even see Mr. Compson kind of lead the witness in a sense where he talks about when they were leading, when their, their rest party came, Suppin led the party. He was in, he was leading his own arrest party when they were walking away. When the, the fights with the slaves were happening, Suppin was the grand finale, almost aggrandizing his status in this town. And then when I would argue, some people will not agree with me, but I would argue that there is a, there's absolutely a third person omniscient narrator in chapter seven. That's, that's irrefutable. I would argue that it exists here in chapter two with the town. Some of the stuff that he relates about the town, I believe, and would argue is an omniscient narrator talking about from a town's perspective. Some people would argue that it is him relaying the town's feelings and emotions and, and experience at the time could it also be that he is a young boy when a lot of this is happening or he's hearing it secondhand so it's not true not truly his thoughts that's the argument is that he heard this eventually through the town and that's why he's able to tell his son now about it because i mean he could he could have been there but as a you know young boy enamored with sut pen where he's just hearing these rumors and every time he sees him with his father but the problem is he's not called out in all those scenes so it's arguable 
Oh, okay. Every time he comes into the the Holston Hotel and he's accosted. These are stories you hear from the town. So Quentin should have been like, well, how do you know that, Dad? Well, this all sets up Sutpen's design, if you will. Sutpen clearly has a design, a drive, a will for something. We don't know why Henry shot his sister's fiance. Like, we're questioning a lot of, there's something happening behind the scenes, but we don't know what it is. But we see the effects of this through the town. It's a good mystery that's being set up, and it's unfolding in a very unique way. Chapter one is Rosa's point of view. So let's get into this. You'll notice both chapters one and chapter two start with houses. From her house, it's covered in wisteria. And the house is described as unpainted and a little shabby. And even having a grim endurance, which I believe also reflect Mrs. Coldfield at this point in time. Wisteria, if you didn't know in literature, typically represents long life. It's a plant that can live for up to 100 years, but it's also a climbing vine and can be deadly when consumed. So you kind of have like a double picture of what this vine represents covering this house. Yeah, I think this is a great representation of her story as a whole. And we've seen this in other short stories we've read where the setting itself is integral to understanding the character's feelings and motives. And if you just gloss over the house real quick, because it has some really expansive vocabulary, and again, you're like, what is wisteria? I don't even know what that word means. And you don't look it up because you're reading like, you know, an actual physical copy of the book. Yeah, it's going to be, you know, pointless. It's going to be lost on you. The blinds are drawn. The sun beats in. And the house is being oppressed almost by the environment. You have this quote, years ago, we in the South made our women into ladies. Then the war came and made the ladies into ghosts. So you get a lot of discussion about oppression here, both the house being oppressed by the environment, the South being oppressed, the women and their their, their status being oppressed. This comes back to what you were saying of the allegory for the South and the Civil War and all of it. Mm-hmm. So let's look at Rosa herself now. The opening lines even kind of talk about how she has been wearing black for 43 years. And they mention the number 43 eight times if you didn't pick up on it. They will beat you in the head with this number. I didn't count that, but I did notice that they said it a lot, but I didn't count eight times. Wow. He is getting you to the idea that something happened 43 years ago and it has oppressed her as a character, as a being for her entire life, which means she's been oppressed since 1866, since the story is taking place in 1909. And the best part about this is you as a reader feel the oppression. These long lines, this complex narrative, this, this structure weighs down on you as a reader that you yourself can feel that emotion as well. I feel depressed. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about the South losing the war. Okay. Northern people have already seen to it that there is little left in the South for a young man. This gives me that a late encounter with the enemy vibe. I think she wants him to remember the story and her version of the story. And that's important for her is that he knows how she thinks, not maybe the actual reality of it. Well, she has this line, but that our cause, our very life and future hopes and past pride should have been into the balance with men like that to buttress it. Men with valor and strength, but without pity or honor. Is it any wonder that heaven saw it fit to let us lose? So I think this brings up a lot of Faulkner's views of of what made the South lose the Civil War. You think it's pride? Well, that brings the next question. Why does Rosa have Quentin tell the story? She is described as being the town poet laureate. She is coming from a respectable family. Why on earth would she have Quentin be the narrator for her story. So I think here she's trying to uh, arguably immortalize herself 
And there's a quote here in the book where she says, Perhaps you will even remember kindly then the old woman who made you spend a whole afternoon sitting indoors and listening while she talked about people and events you were fortunate enough to escape yourself and when you wanted to be out among young friends of your own age. And she's trying to say like she's doing him a favor by letting him sit inside and hang out with her and you know he'd just be off wasting time with his friends well she describes herself as kindly even yeah and if you go back to the beginning of the story like the oppression of the heat like he's getting out of that and he he's being taken care of by her uh, and she's doing him this kind deed but it goes even deeper too I think that's absolutely correct from like a Southern in-universe story. But part of what makes this book so beautiful is we get these allusions to her being like Cassandra, Cassandra-like. Which, do you know who Cassandra is from Greek mythology? I'm going to say no, but I know that she betrays Zeus, right? (laughs) Well, that's kind of cheating, but... (laughs) They all betray Zeus. (laughs) She is a person that fell in love with, I believe it was Apollo, and eventually she was cursed. To always tell the truth, tell prophecies, but never be believed. Just that simple calling her Cassandra, like calling her Cassandra. We see that she actually is a reliable narrator, and I believe everything she says is true. But she's not believed. She has to have Quentin tell her story. And everything's there about oral storytelling and having someone else tell the story that doesn't hate Sutpen. But that simple allusion to Greek mythology and Cassandra is what makes the story so rich to break down. Yeah, because I, I, after talking about it, I realized that she was truthful because she needs the story told by a proxy because nobody trusts her because she's jaded. And I mm-hmm. think that that comes out finally here. All right, so why tell this whole plot of the entire book just in this chapter? And a lot of that comes back to, we just brought up some Greek mythology. There's a lot of Greek mythology if you've watched our before Absalom video. The idea is that this is the muse chapter. You'll notice if you go look at a lot of old Greek tragedies or even kind of Roman plays even a little bit, they'll tell you all the major events that happen in the opening like overture. And then what happens is, is you actually tell the story because sometimes these were based on real events. These were based on real people. And you needed to make sure that everybody understood the background, what was happening, so that you can jump into the story and everybody be on the same page because not everyone's a historian, right? Yeah, they're, they're missing a lot of things, right? Exactly. So here's Faulkner giving the audience, the, the reader, all of the major milestones, but none of the context necessary to understand why those things happen. And you get a lot of names thrown at you. And this is going to be really hard on you because you don't know who any of these people are. You are coming in in the middle of the story. But I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. It just this is a this is a chance where you have to really exercise your literature muscles and try to dive deep into it to get an understanding of what it means. And even if you didn't believe us still, there's this part where they say the word muse and then they enter a, a parenthetical statement, but they start the next sentence with muse as well. And I think there's a third reference to Muse as well. So it's very clear that Rosa is the Muse for the story. She's bringing out and getting you all of the major milestones of the story before we jump into it. Anytime you get a a piece of work that is able to do that, it's an instant classic. And then that's what this is. All right, so chapter two starts out with, we're going to flip narrators to Mr. Compson, who is the son of the guy that was kind of friends with Sutpin throughout this. So you're going to have a more favorable view. It starts out with the opening line, it was a summer of wisteria. Yeah, so this is the complete opposite 
of how we set up the setting, how everything was so oppressed. Now it's like, oh, there's life and vibrant and light and it's summertime and it's the complete reverse of what we had with Rosa in chapter one. So now you're kind of assuming that you're going to get the opposite view from him, which I think is fair to say that you do. And it starts out with him entering the town into the Holston house. And this is where I would argue that you have a little bit of omniscient narrator, and I don't think this is just him reconstructing the stories told from him from other parts, but it's through him that this is filtered, where the town wanted to know where he was, and he was so driven, and, and we didn't know he was poor at the time, but he had a plan. Is that a mistake? The reader must be constantly cognizant of who is telling them the story. Okay. So what's the point of this town? I think this is kind of like in Greek tragedies, plays, musicals. You have a chorus that kind of sings the praises of, of characters or sings moments. The town is the chorus in traditional Greek storytelling. In the same way that chapter one started with the house of Rosas being kind of oppressed, we start with the building of Sutpen's Hundred, which he bought from Chickasaw's virgin land to build. Yes. And there's a quote, be Sutpen's Hundred, like the old time bee light. So in the same way of Sutpen's story beginning is the same as Genesis from the Bible of let there be light will be Sutpen's 100. This is the beginning of this story. Let there be Sutpen. <laughs> <laughs> and Sutpen becomes a big deal. We have this quote, the biggest single landowner and cotton planter in the county now. Sutpen's presence dominates this town in the same way that his presence dominates the landscape. Yes, but we don't know, is he the villain or the hero of the story? Well, and that's where Mr. Compson's narration comes into play because you start to realize, or you start to kind of almost... I don't want to say sympathize, but you're like, oh, he's a driven character. Like, he's getting stuff done. He's being an entrepreneur. Like, yeah, like, he's he's building things, becoming an important man, right? But then you're like, should I trust what he's saying? Is this the truth, or is he over-embellishing things? Right, right. Sutpin is presented as, like, this victim of just being a misunderstood hero of self-sufficiency. Yeah, I mean, not so much as a demon as Rosa portrayed him to be. But again, it's weird that she does that because of kind of our thoughts of how the story is with with the South and losing the Civil War. Well, you may even start to like him a little bit here until you get to the wedding when the town starts <laughs> throwing dirt and vegetable refuse at him. And you realize, okay, something's going on for a whole town to hate this man, right? Yeah. But again, I think this is where you could maybe not trust Compson. I mean, what if he just, as a young boy, didn't understand the idea of throwing rice and stuff, and they didn't have any rice, so they used whatever they had. <laughs> like dirt. <laughs> I, like dirt. I mean, why not, right? Safer for the birds. <laughs> All right, so let's jump into the allegory, I feel like, of Thomas Sutpen and the Old South. So this part, I'll try to be a little bit more helpful, but I was still, because I haven't read the whole thing in its entirety, I'm still struggling a little bit. Obviously, the Civil War, very important to the story right? Yeah, it's even mentioned. We're told that the South lost because God willed it because of men like Sutpen. All right. There's three things that happen here that are important in Sutpen's life. He gets the land from the Chickasaw Native Americans. He goes to church looking for a wife, and he is looking to marry into a family that is a little bit well off. And so Sutpen, okay, let's start with those line by line, buys virgin land from the Chickasaw Indians, what happened to early settlers when they first came to America? So for with our allegory uh, here, Sudpen 
uh, swindles the Native Americans out of their land like the, the, the original settlers did. And then he leaves for two months to do what? Go get slaves, which we had to get slaves for all of the farms. So Sutpen only went to church to meet his wife. He wasn't really truly a religious man. man. He was using church to an end. Talk to me about that from a Southern view, Crypto. So Sutpen is using the church to just find a wife. Uh, he's not actually going there because he's a godly man. And this is sort of the idea that we were using slaves um, in, to to better ourselves. He's doing the same thing to try to better himself using the church in this regards. And arguably, too, I believe with Southern way of life is that rich plantation owners would marry other rich plantation owners with the idea of these are all status in terms of slavery, land size, keeping it inside a family kind of like rich marrying rich to keep the power. Yeah, royalty marrying royalty. Yeah, definitely. So I think that kind of brings us to the end here. Uh, we've digested a lot so far, and I think this is going to take multiple pass-throughs. And again, don't feel you know down on yourself if you're struggling with this. Watch the videos, read it a few times, and you will get it. It's such an amazing piece. You can enjoy it. And again, if you get just one thing out of it, your first read-through, that's more than a lot of people. The first time I read this, uh, I had to talk to Una, and then I read it a second time, and I got a lot more out of it. But be persistent in this, and I think that you will enjoy it for what it is, because it is an amazing piece of literature that's doing a great job with the allegories and the telling of an amazing story and Amer Southern American history. And I will give you the last warning that the next chapter is narrated by Mr. Thompson as well. But for some reason, he changes the structure like they don't use the quotes the same way. It's a little bit strange the way he approaches it, and it's a little bit complicated, but keep pushing through, and we will go into more detail with chapters three and four for the next session. So if you guys enjoy literature discussions like this, please consider subscribing. We are going to be going through this couple chapters at a time to try to break it down. I think the idea is that we didn't want to just present a first read through. We wanted to have maybe someone that can guide you through a little bit more of what some of these illusions were that Faulkner was making. So if you are on board for that, please consider subscribing and we will continue our journey down Absalom, Absalom. Peace.